It's a pleasure to introduce our first presenter, uh, Jeffrey Myron. Uh, he's an informal sort of guy, so you can call him Dr. Myron if you wish. Uh, he's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and he's the director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard University. He's a modest person, but my sources tell me he is an astonishingly popular uh, lecturer among the undergraduates because he manages to make economics exciting, interesting, and fun rather than a boring and tedious mathematics exercise. Uh, he was, uh, from 92 to 98, chairman of the economics department at Boston University. Among his areas of expertise is the failure <clears throat> of the war on drugs. He actually pays attention to incentives and how this changes human behavior. Jeff, let's start us off. Thank you. So thank you very much to Tom. It's my first time at Cato U. Um, like I think most of the people out there, thank you for coming. It's a pleasure to uh, see you here and talk about libertarianism and economics. So the motivation for my remarks is we want to think about what's the appropriate size of government and what are the arguments for the appropriate size of government that libertarians tend toward. And I'm an economist, so I think about that in the context of economics. Does economics suggest that we should have small government, limited government, or not? Now, from one perspective, you might think that economics doesn't tell us much at all okay, about libertarian or non-libertarian government. Why is that? Because although there's some famous libertarian economists, Mises, Hayek, Friedman, Gary Becker, and so on, you just have to pick up this morning's paper okay, to find a zillion economists okay, from top institutions saying very unlibertarian things about economic policies. Okay? The last two Fed chairs, Alan Greenspan and Ben Bernanke, both claimed before they were Fed chairs that they were libertarians. And yet, they've clearly conducted themselves in ways that libertarians are not particularly uh, uh, approving of. Okay? Larry Summers, indeed, in his college days, according to some accounts, was an ardent libertarian. He may end up being the, the next Fed chair. So that would be three in a row. And yet, we don't expect we're going to get libertarian policies okay? on a whole range of issues, from income distribution to drug prohibition to uh, you know, almost anything you can think of. Lots of, lots of economists endorse lots and lots of big government. Okay? In addition, when economists talk about policy and libertarianism, they use a very different language. They use the language of consequences whereas many libertarians tend to use the language of rights or values or liberty, freedom. Okay, so it's not clear exactly how the two things are connected okay, because they seem to be using somewhat different terms. Same time, it's clear that lots of people that you meet at a cocktail party or your relatives think that if you're an economist, you tend to be free market or libertarian. And it's certainly true that one standard defense of libertarian policies flows from looking at the consequences of interventionist policies rather than or in addition to thinking about who has what rights and under what conditions and so on. Okay? So my goal, roughly, for the, this lecture and the one this afternoon is to straighten all this out. What does economics tell us about the appropriate size and scope of government? What I'm going to argue is that it provides a very strong basis for libertarian policy views. But it's a foundation. It's not a proof. You can't say, oh, if you're a thoughtful, consistent, rigorous economist, you necessarily must come to libertarian conclusions in every case. I think that's a little bit too strong. But I think it creates an enormous presumption in favor of libertarian policy perspectives uh, for reasons that I will explain. So here's sort of an outline of both this morning's talk and this afternoon's talk. 
Today I'm going to talk about the relatively nerdy academic, oops, sorry, not handling that correctly, um, relatively nerdy academic stuff is what is economics? There are two flavors of economics, it turns out, called positive and normative. It's very important to think about those separately and discuss why economics really might have a lot to say about policy in many situations. But what it has to say is definitely subject to one's assumptions about values, about what it is society should be trying to accomplish with its policies. Okay? So I won't necessarily come to strong conclusions okay, in the morning talk. So there's no really good punchline this morning. But in the afternoon, I want to talk about what the possible values are that a government, a society, an individual could hope that government policy tends to promote or to maximize. And I'm again going to argue that for any reasonable values, okay, economics makes a strong case for libertarianism. Now that's a pretty strong statement because I'm saying for any value system, or any, excuse me, any reasonable value system, of course you can posit some idiotic value system that uh, will have all sorts of implications for big government or crazy government, whatever. But for the set of value systems that most people have across the political spectrum, I'm going to argue that they should be supporting libertarian policies uh, rather than the big government policies we have now. Okay, so now into the relatively sort of nerdy stuff for a little bit. It may seem a little dull for a few slides for a while, but there's a reason, there's a method to the madness. Okay? So economics does two different kinds of analyses. We do ones that are referred to as positive, okay, which means that they're descriptive, they're predictive. They just try to say, what do we expect to happen in certain situations? Okay? Like science tries to predict what happens if you hold a ball at shoulder height and you let go. It says there's this thing we can't see or measure called gravity, and it pulls it okay, down, to, uh, down to the floor. Okay? The second type of economic analysis is known as normative, and it makes a judgment about which policies are best. Okay? So the term positive, of course, is incredibly annoying, one of many ways in which economists use everyday words to mean something completely different. It doesn't mean it's a good analysis or it's saying anything and it is good. It's saying we're just trying to understand the science of exactly how things work. The normative analysis okay, makes a judgment. Okay? And as you'll see, we need to make additional assumptions okay, in order to get from the positive to the normative. So the two are related, in particular positive analysis, figuring out what will happen if government does policy X versus policy Y, okay, clearly may inform your views over whether policy X is better than policy Y, okay, but it's not the same thing. And you have to say something additional to conclude that one policy is better than another. So positive economics is trying to be scientific. We have models of how people or firms or governments behave. We test these models with data. Okay, so in principle, okay, Economics is like physics. Okay, now my son, who wants to be a physicist, just laughs uproariously when I say that. Of course, economics is way less precise than physics is. Why? Mainly because economists can't do experiments. We don't have a parallel universe in which Ben Bernanke did not become Fed chair or the government did not conduct the TARP bailouts, and we get to observe what happened in that other, otherwise identical okay, version of the United States of the world. We can't do that for most interesting economic questions. Okay? But in principle, okay, we're trying to do things like physics. We posit a set of models, and then we test those models with data. And that part is designed to be and should be value-free Two different decently trained economists should agree on any positive analysis, subject to normal you know, scientific uncertainty. There's some things we don't know about, and so, of course, there might be some room for disagreement. So the standard supply and demand model that most of you have heard of okay, is a standard positive economic model. It tells us what's going to happen if 
more people want to buy a particular good relative to the previous period, that's going to shift the demand curve out, raise the price, increase the quantity sold. There's no value there. There's no judgment. There's nothing necessarily good or bad. It's just a model that predicts what will happen under certain exogenous changes. Now, any analysis okay, has to think about two things. Okay? It has to think about the constraints that are faced by the people in those settings, in those models, in those examples. And it has to think about how people make choices. And these are two completely separate and really important things that interact. Okay? Lots of the criticism you hear about economists and economics focuses on the second component. It's, they, people allege that we assume, we as economists assume, that everybody's hyper-rational, that everybody has all the necessary information, that they only care about their utility or their wealth or whatever. Okay? That's really, first of all, not right. But second of all, it's missing a crucial part of what makes economics economics, which is the first component, the fact that people face constraints. Their choices are not unconstrained, whatever their objective function is okay, for those choices. Okay? So I'm going to go through those two pieces okay, in succession. So if you had to define economics in one line, economics is just the observation that resources are scarce or resources are finite. There's only so much stuff at any moment in time. The rate at which we can produce new stuff over time is finite. We can't just assert that we should double GDP between this year and next year. There are limits. There are things that constrain the amount of resources we have. And this, to the extent economics is a science, this is part of it. This is a fact. This is not have anything to do with whether people are rational or not, whether they have psychological influence or not. This is just something that we have to accept. Okay? Accounting identities are identities. They always hold. Constraints are constraints. So one way to describe economics says we believe the laws of arithmetic. Okay? We believe that 2 plus 2 is 4. It's never 5 or 7 or 86. And you'll be amazed at how often you listen to statements by politicians and other advocates of policy that want you to believe that they can make 2 plus 2 be something other than 4. We'll see lots of examples in a few minutes. So let's look at examples of the standard constraints. We think that consumers are constrained by their budgets. Firms are constrained by the technology they have available to make stuff and by the market. And governments are constrained, in particular, by something I'll explain in more detail in a minute, called the present value budget constraint. So constraints for consumers. Think about a really, really simple case first. You have a consumer who has a given amount of income at a moment in time. You can imagine, say, someone with $50 in the wallet. They walk into a grocery store. This is pre-ATMs, pre-credit cards, debit cards, all that stuff. So that day, as you walk in the grocery store, there's only so much you can purchase. Whatever your choices are, say they're two goods, X and Y, and each has the price, piece of X or piece of Y. The total amount you spend has to be less than or equal to the amount of money you brought with you when you went into the store. And that's true whether your choices are rational or not. It's true whether you happen to like ice cream or you happen to like steak or you happen to like vegetables. Your choices have to satisfy the constraint. Okay? So there are bounds on what a consumer might do regardless of what, how we think that consumer is likely to behave. Now, if we had a dynamic setting, slightly more realistically, people don't just live at an instant in time. They earn income. They save. They accumulate work and, and so on. They might be able to borrow in, uh, in many settings. It's still true that there's a constraint. It's just slightly more complicated. We know that their lifetime consumption cannot exceed their lifetime income, plus whatever gifts they might have gotten from friends or parents, plus any inheritance, plus any borrowing. But the amount of resources your parents might give you is finite. The amount that the bank is willing to lend to you is finite. So still, even when we look in this intertemporal way, each consumer faces a constraint that puts bounds on the consumer's choices. Okay? 
Might seem sort of obvious, okay, but it's really, really, really important. Here's an example of why it's really important. When we talk about whether tax cuts are going to stimulate the economy, okay, people say, oh, consumers will have more disposable income if we cut taxes, so they'll go out and spend more. Okay, but if those consumers have any brains, okay, they should think to themselves, you know what? The government's not going to have resources okay, forever to keep making tax cuts, tax cuts. At some point in the future, it's going to raise taxes to pay back the borrowing it did just now. That means that my taxes are going to go up in the future by roughly the amount that they were cut just now. Therefore, my lifetime resources hasn't really changed. Okay? So I actually can't afford to spend anything more than I could before my taxes were cut okay? because I know that over my lifetime, that's all going to average out. Okay? We'll see that again okay, in another minute. Okay? If you think about that, that then says government's attempt to stimulate the economy with tax cuts may be much less effective than it's assumed to be in the Keynesian model. Well, why? The Keynesian model just says people are only thinking about today. They completely ignore the future in making their choices. That's not realistic and, and raises this huge issue. Firms, of course, face constraints. What do I mean by firms? Any organization, nonprofit, for-profit, whatever, that takes inputs okay, and makes outputs. Okay? So firms obviously face technological constraints. Okay? They can only get a given quantity of inputs from, of output from the inputs that they have. Okay? And so they can't just respond to everything as they would like. Okay? If you've read the biography of Steve Jobs, you see really cool illustrations of this. He would be yelling and screaming at his engineers, no, the iPhone has to have these characteristics. It has to have this much battery life and this kind of screen. And, all. and they'd say, no, it won't all fit in there. You can't do that. Now, of course, Steve Jobs was famous for pushing them really hard and sometimes making them work hard enough that they did figure out a way. So the production, they, they shifted the production function over time, but with great effort and resources. Okay? So firms have to take technologies as given. Sort of even more important, or maybe less sort of obviously, firms have to accept the market. The demand for any firm's commodities are downward sloping, meaning the higher the price the firm charges, the less it will be able to sell. Okay? So firms might have some ability to nudge that relation. If you advertise or market your product well, maybe you can sell a little bit more for a given demand curve. But that takes resources and has limits. So firms can't just assume that they can sell whatever they want okay, at any price they want okay, because the market imposes this relation, the downward sloping uh, demand curve. Um, let's look at an extreme case of that because it's, it's useful and comes up. And this specific example comes up in lots of cases. People complain about monopolies. They say monopolies are evil. Why? Because they can charge whatever they want. Okay? Well, that's just nonsense if you think it all in terms of constraints. Okay? Why? Because they could charge whatever they wanted. The price of an iPhone would already be $8 million a phone or $8 billion a phone. They obviously can't charge whatever they want. Their ability to set a higher price is constrained by the market demand curve. If they, Apple sets a higher price, they're going to sell fewer iPhones. Okay? So there's a trade-off. Even a monopolist knows it will lose sales okay, when it raises price, and it's going to choose some balance between higher price per unit and the number of units it sells okay, in setting its policy. Okay. Um, okay. Finally, constraints for government. Okay, this one is crucial. I sort of alluded to it a little bit already. Governments obviously raise revenue by taxing or borrowing. Lots of people think that government expenditure can do all sorts of beneficial things, hire the unemployed during recessions, give free, free health care to everyone, provide public schools, and on and on and on, billions of examples. So if the government can always just tax more or borrow more, okay, and these things are good that it might do with that 
revenue. Why doesn't it do all of that and more for everyone all the time? Because the taxing power is finite. The particular relation is referred to by economists as the present value budget constraint. That just means the sum of all the taxes the government raises okay, can't be, excuse me, the sum of all this expenditure can't be more than the sum of all the taxes it collects. People aren't going to keep lending to a government forever okay, if it is trying to spend way more than its economy could ever justify. We've seen this in dramatic fashion in Greece and Portugal and Italy and Spain over the last several years. Those countries had paths for their expenditure that they could never pay for because their economies weren't large enough or growing fast enough to generate nearly enough tax revenue. People started to recognize it, so what did they do? They stopped a, um, lending to those countries or only lending extremely high interest rates, which made the situations even worse. Okay? And so government's power was finite. Okay, many of you have heard of the Laffer curve. That's one way of embodying the fact that the government faces constraints as it raises tax rates and tries to take more and more, it's going to induce more avoidance and evasion. At some point, when the tax rate gets to be 100%, it collects zero revenue okay, because no one's going to ever bother to earn any income or certainly not report that income to the government if 100% of it is going to be taken away. Okay. And as I mentioned, you might think, oh, the government, some people would like to argue the government can get around this by borrowing, but the borrowing has to be repaid and the market will impose the constraint if you try to borrow more than your economy is ever able to generate. So this is relevant to talking about stimulus policies, to bailouts, uh, to austerity programs. All of those have to face the reality that there's only so much stuff. All the things that the European governments have been doing to bail out Greece, and they're not creating more wealth. They're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Why? Because that's what the budget constraint says. More for Peter, okay, or more for Greece, and less for, for Germany okay, doesn't change the overall total recognizing that there are these constraints already gives you a huge insight okay, on uh, what might be sensible policies in those situations. Okay, so the fact that there are these constraints gets us to a slightly more interesting sort of point. Okay? The fact that constraints is incredibly important, but in some sense it's arithmetic, so it's sort of boring. Okay? But recognizing the constraints tells us that all of these economic agents face trade-offs. Okay? If you can't just decide you want to spend more on some things and not spend less on something else, you realize you have to spend less on other things to buy more of one thing, you face a trade-off. You have a choice. I might prefer more apples and fewer oranges or vice versa, but I can't just have more of both. Equivalently, you can say that every choice, every decision to use resources involves an opportunity cost. When you buy one thing, you're losing the opportunity to use those same resources to buy something else. Why do you face that trade-off? because of the fact that the resources are scarce. Okay? Now, just to make that crystal clear, consider the opposite case. Think about a consumer with infinite income. Well, the consumer just buys whatever it wants. It never has to say, oh, if I spend more on my house, I'll have less to spend on my car. It has an infinite income. It just buys a bigger car and a bigger house. Firms with infinite demand could sell whatever they want. Governments that could borrow without limit could, of course, fund any programs that they wish. But if you state those hypotheticals, it makes it crystal clear that they're insane and that we shouldn't think that way. Also probably reminds you of all the government policies which try to get you to think in that incorrect way. All these economic agents face these constraints and therefore they face trade-offs. Okay? Um, and that's going to be crucial to what effects government policies might have. Okay? So you face trade-offs. Then you have to make choices. You can't just say, I want more. You can't be like a one-year-old that just wants more of everything. You have to recognize okay, that these constraints and whatever choices you make have to obey those constraints. 
Okay, so now to make it slightly more interesting still, the constraints tell us what choices are possible. You can't spend more than your income, so that obviously puts some limits on what you could do. But it doesn't tell us exactly what you're going to purchase when you go into the store. It doesn't tell us what programs government will function. It doesn't tell us what uh, choices a firm will make about what to produce or how to produce it or anything like that. Okay? So we need some more structure. Okay? The structure is going to mean assumptions. Okay? All models are just assumptions. Okay? What economics assumes is that economic agents have goals and they make the best choices they can to help them achieve those goals. Now that should sound sort of familiar, but maybe slightly different. You're probably more used to hearing, if you had any economics uh, familiarity, that consumers maximize their utility. Well, that's a special case of what I've just described, but I've said it in this particular way to make clear that there's lots of goals any individual could have or any firm could have. Okay? They don't necessarily maximize in some ultra, ultra rational way, but it seems reasonable to think of most people, and they go into any situation as having a set of objectives they'd like to achieve, and they do more or less their best to try to achieve those. So that sounds pretty sort of calm, pretty consistent with most behavior that we observed. So what might these goals be? Now, in fact, in textbook economic analysis, in many journal articles, in many kind of analyses you would do to analyze policies, you would use relatively simple assumptions. You would assume the consumers maximize their utility, or maybe they maximize how much consumption they're going to have over their lifetime or their total wealth or something like that. For firms, we typically start by assuming that they maximize profit, although, of course, they're nonprofit firms, so need modifications for that. For governments, the standard assumption textbooks, I know it will generate some derision here is that the governments are trying to maximize the welfare somehow defined of their citizens. Okay? So those, indeed, we do tend to make relatively simple assumptions, okay? but nothing in economics dictates what agents' goals are. Perfectly consistent with economics, that consumers might care about the welfare of others, be altruistic. Okay? Firms might care about the social value or the greenness or something of their products. Okay, maybe they do that because they think it's good PR and they're really just maximizing profits. Maybe they do that because they genuinely care about selling green products. Okay? Governments might care about their own power and prestige, not just the welfare of their citizens. Government might care about special interest, not the typical citizen or the median voter or anything like that. So the point is that a lot of criticism of economics says, oh, economics is useless because it just assumes everybody is focused only on these narrow monetary things. Everybody's ultra selfish and all that sort of thing. Okay? That's just simply not accurate. Okay? There are billions of analyses in textbook and outside that allow for these much broader set of things. And you can really explain anything you want with economics models by stating the appropriate things as the agent's goals. If you observe people who seem to like to chew dirty socks, okay, you just have to write down a model that says people get utility from chewing dirty socks. And that makes it sort of silly and tautological, but it means that the criticism that we're overly weighting monetary things, overly emphasizing that people care about material wealth, is just not true. Anything in ec economics is, can handle any set of goals that you might care to consider. Okay? So it's not right to think that economics says everybody's an individualist. It can totally be communitarians. They just try to do a good job of being a communitarian, given that their goal is to be a communitarian or to be cooperative and so on doesn't dictate that firms are necessarily selfish rather than benevolent. It just says if a firm's objective is to be benevolent, it tries hard okay, to do a good job of being benevolent. Okay? That's essentially what tries to maximize something given its constraints. So again, economics, positive framework says agents have goals, 
They do their best to achieve these goals subject to constraints. So doing their best subject to constraints, that's the crucial part. Now, how do we decide which goals to model, which goals to assume in various contexts? If economics allows any assumption about what agents' goals might be, okay, then how does it generate any useful predictions? Okay. Utility, profit maximization might seem good approximation in some cases, but certainly not all. So the modeling comes down to evidence. Okay. We choose to model agents as having particular goals because the evidence seems to support that those goals are the primary ones that motivate uh, economic agents in particular settings. Most firms seem to behave mainly as though they're concerned about profits rather than about being green. Most people seem to care in many of their decisions as though they care about their material wealth as one crucially important thing to them, not necessarily about all sorts of other things. But we make different assumptions in different cases. If we're interested in knowing how a tax on apples is going to affect the market for apples, you don't need to worry about whether consumers are altruistic or not. Okay? You can just have a simple consumer who maximizes utility from apples and other stuff. But if we're trying to understand why people give to charities, how much they give to charity, whether the tax deductibility for ta uh, charitable contributions will have an effect on giving, then we have to have a model in which we include altruism, and that is what standard economics practice would do. Now, one other thing, which is a slightly sort of nerdy aside, um, another term that comes up over and over again in criticizing economics is rationality. Okay? We're always told, you assume all your agents are super rational, they're just like way smarter than Newton and Leibniz because they can solve these messy calculus problems that you write down in the textbook. That just can't possibly be right. Okay? Well, I think that's sort of missing the, boy, the boat. Standard economics does tend to assume that agents are rational in the following sense. They have some understanding of the situation they're in, they, have, they utilize all the information that's available, and they do their best job of achieving their goal given that information and their understanding. Okay? So it turns out to be convenient to model them as being rational in that sense. Okay? But it's a silly debate because we can get any result we want in a model in which they have weird preferences. They try to you know, maximize some odd utility function, but they do so rationally. Okay? And so the, the rationality assumption is really just a way of making models clean. Okay? You don't, it, it's never the right thing to be arguing about when someone gives you a hard time about economics. So last sort of piece of background before we get to the real meat is it's very important to understand that economics is an as-if science. My view is that all sciences are as-if science. Again, I have some disagreements with my son about that. But okay, we don't assert, economists do not assert, that everyone or anyone obeys the assumptions in our models. Okay? For the moment, I'm talking about positive economics, not normative issues. Okay? We just say that the predictions from our models are pretty good in many settings. The models are useful, even though we know the assumptions are false. We know that people couldn't possibly do exactly what we assume in the models, but it seems to capture the essence of what they do close enough, just like models of the way of Newtonian mechanics that ignore friction predict a lot of useful things about the way the physical universe operates, okay, even though we know that there are no frictionless worlds, surfaces, or, fric or uh, vac perfect vacuums, or things like that. Physics is a model that makes assumptions that are demonstrably false and nevertheless gets useful predictions. So economics may not be as accurate as physics, but it's, you, it's approaching modeling and science in the same way. So it does not matter whether some people are rational or some people are behavioral. That's a term I'll come back to uh, this afternoon. It doesn't matter if everybody's a little bit irrational some of the time. 
What matters is whether the predictions of models seem to be accurate. Okay? And um, that is going to play a big role in some of the things I'll discuss later on. Okay? So economics is as if. So what have I said so far? Choices have to respect the relevant constraints. That gives you lots of insights about lots of policies. All choices, therefore, face trade-offs because decisions have opportunity costs. Doing one thing means you can't do something else. Economics assumes people do the best they can given their goals without taking a strong stand on what those goals might be. Okay? And so now we want to look at what that implies, and that will get us one step closer to talking about policy. Okay? So the crucial word is incentives. Okay? The framework we have says that people respond to incentives, that is to the relative prices of one good versus another, the relative returns of one occupation for another, the constraints that might be imposed by a government policy, such as forcing you to go to school or telling you which school you can go to and things like that. Okay? So the notion that people respond to incentives is at one level both profound and trivial. It's trivial because, in my view, not meaning to offend anybody, if you have half a brain, it's obvious that people respond to incentives. And everybody sort of recognizes that people respond to incentives. Okay? But it's profound because so much of the case made for interventionist policies ignores the fact or tries to sweep under the rug all the ways in which people do respond to incentives. And that's why they get what I believe are sort of incorrect conclusions. So we're going to look at what this means and examples and implications of incentives. Okay? So the framework says, economics says, people will do their best to achieve their objectives given the constraints. But that means if the constraints change, people will typically want to do something different. That is, they will respond to the modification and incentives implied by the change constraint, even if your goals are weird. If you're someone whose goal is to chew a lot of dirty socks, but the price of dirty socks goes up, okay, your budget constraint tells you you're going to have to modify your behavior. You either buy less of something else or chew fewer dirty socks, so you will be responding to the incentive. There's nothing in the responding to incentive that assumes agents are acting in some usual or normal or sort of standard fashion. Whatever their objectives are, the change in constraints means that uh, they're going to have different incentives and are likely to respond. So now let's get into some examples. Consumers buy less of a good if the tax raises the goods price. Firms reconsider where they locate if tax on profits goes up in one state or country relative to another's. Politicians change their positions on the issues if public opinion changes in that direction. At least most politicians do. And then finally, the crucial sort of last step in today's discussion is okay, that there are unintended consequences because there are these responses to incentives. So everyone agrees pretty much that policies might change incentives. Sorry, there's a word missing there. Okay? But the advocates of intervention in particular are super selective about which incentives they want to recognize. Think about sort of high tax rates on the rich okay, and, you know, the, and the amount of revenue and income. The people who like those high tax rates, who want to do a lot of redistribution from rich to poor, want to argue that the rich won't respond to those incentives okay, because you know, they have enough money, it doesn't really matter. Lots of evidence suggests otherwise. Okay? So they're being selective, and given what's plausible, and given in particular what the evidence says okay, about what effects that we have. In particular, even more importantly, many policies affect a ton of incentives, and that's why policies have unintended consequences. So in a nutshell, the value of economics in terms of informing libertarianism is unintended consequences. That's the crucial thing that we're going to explore. Um, for the rest of the discussion. So 
see how much time I have to go through all of these examples. But these are crucial for understanding why standard economic reasoning okay, gets you to lots of unintended consequences of policy. So the Endangered Species Act is supposed to protect species that the Department of Interior has listed, put on this official list as being endangered. If you have that species discovered on your property, you're not allowed to develop that property. Like timber uh, firms in the Northwest are not allowed to cut down a bunch of trees because someone had discovered a particular species of owl, the northern spotted owl, on their land. Okay. So what have property owners okay, done in response? Well, a few cases they've gone out and killed the species, but that comes with okay, very serious penalties if you're caught, like jail. Okay? So some have done it, but you know, there's, there's some incentive not to do exactly that. What else could you do? You could try it. Well, let's, uh, I'm talking about before anyone, the government's come along and said, oh, there's a snail darter on your property, and snail darters are an endangered species. You cut it all down before anyone has a chance to discover a snail dart or a spotted owl or whatever it is. There's a very convincing paper by an economist in Chicago that found clear evidence that property owners who had developable land were responding to one of the incentives created by the Endangered Species Act. It's an incentive to develop everything right now, or at least cut down all the trees so that there's no way any birds are living there that could possibly ever be listed as endangered. Okay? So, that's an interesting case, okay? Billions of other cases. Soak the rich tax policy we just talked about, but just to elaborate a little, people may respond by paying all those higher taxes, but they might take more steps to hide their income. They might move overseas uh, so that they're taxed at, at some lower rate in another country. So again, that's an unintended consequence of trying to achieve a corporate goal, a particular goal. Corporate income taxes may have some of those same effects. It also gives corporation incentive to have very complicated strategies okay, and very complicated accounting in order to minimize their tax burden. A big part of why Enron and other things like that happened is those companies were desperately trying to arbitrage weird, bizarre tax laws, okay, complicated rules that if you were clever, you could use to your advantage to make more money. Investors couldn't really figure out what the heck was going on because it was so complicated. So the corporate income tax gives us complicated tax forms that helps perpetuate uh, fraud uh, and corruption in corporations. Okay? Drug prohibition. So I could go on that one for, for a long, long time. But one unintended consequence is increasing violence. Why? Because when you drive a market underground, those disputes that would normally occur in any market okay, are likely to be settled with violence, settled with guns, rather than with lawyers and courts, because people in a black market can't use courts. You're likely to see poor quality control because in a normal market, when you get a commodity that isn't good, you can try to take it back. You can complain to possibly a government agency. You can put an ad in the newspaper that says, this company sold me lousy stuff. Can't do any of those things if you get lousy crack from the crack dealer down the street. So quality control is much uh, more difficult in an underground market as a result of drug, drug prohibition. HIV has spread much more rapidly in the US because of drug prohibition. Why? Prohibition raises the prices of drugs. Okay, prohibition also fosters this attitude that selling disposable syringes over the counter is not a good thing because it somehow might facilitate people's drug use. Okay? And so it's hard to buy clean syringes easily without a prescription in most states. People want to inject some drugs because they get a big bang for the buck, and that's important if the drugs are really expensive. If they were legal, okay, they'd be cheap. 
People would be much happier consuming them in other ways than injecting, okay, and therefore not sharing dirty needles. Sharing of dirty needles is responsible for something like 40% of new HIV cases in the last 10 or 15 years in the United States. And there's, there's lots more we can talk about for drug prohibition. Medicare reimbursement policies. Okay, so I have a sister who's an assistant U.S. attorney, and she now spends her time suing hospitals and other medical providers because they are trying hard to choose the set of diagnostic codes to describe the procedures that they did for a particular patient in a way that maximizes the hospital's reimbursements under the Medicaid rules. Okay, well, she thinks that's evil. I think it's just profit maximization. I think that's exactly what we should expect. That's the incentive that's created by having government set all these prices, which of course are never going to exactly reflect the relative cost of different procedures. So of course the hospital is going to try to claim that it did the really fancy high-cost procedure when it really did a relatively low-tech procedure, but did close enough to the high-cost one that it can use the high-cost code and therefore get a better reimbursement. So all this mess, all these lawsuits over Medicare fraud and all that is 99% due to having Medicare, to having this incredibly cumbersome system. Minimum wage and rent controls, one you're probably fairly familiar with. A really, this is an aside. A really odd thing is that every single economist in the universe hates rent controls. But a large fraction defend minimum wages. But if you go to any standard economic textbook and you find the page that explains rent control and you find the page that explains minimum wages and look at the diagrams, they're identical. It's exactly the same economic question. So they should have exactly parallel sort of economic effects, and they do. One thing that rent control does is discourage people from wanting to be landlords, from building more apartments. That keeps the price of all rents high. So that's sort of completely insane. Again, it's an unintended consequence of the policy. High-stakes testing and accountability. The idea behind those programs is to have all these school kids, most of you have probably gone through this, take these tests to publish the results of the tests, okay, and then frequently give rewards or punishments to schools or teachers or school systems that did well on the test or did better on the test than they'd done in previous years. So maybe that gets teachers who were doing previously doing a lousy job and letting kids have recess all day long to spend more time teaching, reading, and writing arithmetic. There seems to be evidence that that does happen some of the time. There's also evidence that encourages kids to cheat more, teachers to cheat more, schools to systematically call kids who are non-English proficient and tell them to stay home on the day of the test, or to classify kids, sorry, tell, not, not to incentivize them to reclassify kids as being not English proficient, because those scores don't go into the averages, to tell other kids that they know are going to do badly on the test to stay home on the day of the test so they can cook the books. So there may be some beneficial effects of those policies. There are clearly all sorts of other unintended and not so obviously good policies. Uh, let me skip that one, in the interest of time. Concealed versus open carry is a really fun one. Um, the debate is whether you should be legally allowed to carry a gun, at least some range of guns, okay, in public, either concealed or open. Okay? So lots of people would say, well, we, we want open carry. We want to know who has a gun and who's not, who's armed. But a standard economic analysis suggests there may well be benefits of concealed carry, why? Because if some people have guns but criminals can't tell who does and who doesn't, they may be incentivized to avoid attacking all sorts of people okay, because they don't know whether you, you are a particular person who is carrying a gun. So at this point, almost all states or all states okay, have adopted concealed carry laws. The predictions of the 
you know, pro-gun control types when this started happening in the early, mid-80s was that there would be blood on the streets everywhere, that the U.S. crime rate would soar and on and on and on. So far, it's just grotesquely counterfactual. The U.S. crime rate has been falling almost from precisely the point that states started adopting uh, these concealed carry laws. Um, interestingly, in the state legislature of New Mexico, I visited a few months ago, you can carry open or concealed anywhere in the building. There are no metal detectors, no security, and you can walk right onto the floor of the legislature and you know, chat with your state senator or whatever with your gun on your holster, a gun on your hip, a gun on his hip. Like, it just makes such a mockery of the anti-gun crowd's view that if people have guns, they're going to shoot each other over any dispute, no matter how ridiculous dispute. just doesn't seem to work that way. Uh, flood insurance subsidies encourage people to build in areas that are likely to flood. So maybe it has, it's good because it helps people who get flooded, but over the long haul, it means we have a lot more people getting flooded because it gets people to live in stupid areas. The minimum legal drinking age, okay, something I've written about. It's probably near and dear to the hearts of uh, those of you who weren't being served at uh, Finner Borders last night, okay, is meant to reduce traffic fatalities amongst 18 to 20-year-olds. Okay? There's not much evidence that it actually does that. At the same time, because it makes alcohol somewhat more difficult to get in the 18 to 20-year-old range, means that a lot of kids seem to drink really heavily when they do get access to alcohol, so that binge drinking is, if anything, increased by the, the higher drinking age, okay, rather than in any way discouraged. The estate tax okay, gets people to do all sorts of sort of things to avoid being subject to the estate tax or paying as much estate tax, giving money away earlier, hiding their assets, and in particular, create, it's a full employment act for lawyers and accountants. Without the estate tax, almost all those people would have to work harder to make a living at being a lawyer or something else because there wouldn't be this guaranteed government program that says, if you can figure out the arcana of the tax code, then you can make money selling your advice okay, to people who have big enough estates. Okay? The Food and Drug Administration is another sort of huge example okay, that economists like in particular. Um, what does it do? It's supposed to make sure ineffective, unsafe medicines don't get on the market. So it requires the pharmaceutical manufacturers to conduct all sorts of clinical trials and tests. These take a long time. They're very expensive and so on. So if you think that there might be a drug which has benefit for a small number of people, but the costs of developing this new drug are going to be a billion dollars once you go through all the FDA procedure, procedures, okay, uh, processes, you're not going to try to develop a drug that's only going to have a small market. So lots of pharmaceutical companies are going to focus on things with big markets like Viagra. Okay? Um, if the Food and Drug Administration is making it take a long time for drugs to get to market because the, pro they have to, the manufacturer has to go through this exhaustive proof that the drug is safe and efficacious, it might prevent some bad drugs from ending up on the market that otherwise would have ended up on the market and harmed some people. There are certainly some examples where that seems to have been the case. Okay? At the same time, it's take, making it take much longer, sometimes 10, 15 years longer, for effective drugs to get onto the market. And help people could be helped by those drugs. So at a minimum, the right evaluation has to balance the fact that you're preventing some bad drugs but severely delaying a ton of effective drugs People who have tried to calibrate those two numbers to come up with it overall endorse the conclusion that the FDA kills. Now, that kind of analysis is tricky. You have to make some assumptions. But there doesn't seem to be a, a case from the data that on net, the FDA is producing good consequences rather than bad consequences. Uh, wage and price controls, just because it's sort of different, what's one of the crucial sort of 
long-term effects of wage and price controls in World War II. Government, the, the tax deductibility, the huge subsidy to health care that comes from the fact that that's a non-tax benefit. During the war, when companies wanted to pay higher wages to get more employees, they didn't have enough people around because tons of people were overseas fighting in the war. Okay, they wanted to pay higher wages, but the Wage and Price Board wouldn't let them. Okay, so they said, oh, well, we won't raise your wage, but we'll give you free health care. And then at some point, a decision was made that that was not going to be a taxable benefit. Okay, now, that's persisted ever since. And so there's a big subsidy to getting compensated via getting health care. That's one of the reasons why health care costs are higher in the United States than they should be. Okay, so more or less on schedule. Summary so far. Positive economics models people as doing their best given their constraints. The constraints have some really interesting implications for what policy can possibly achieve or not in various situations. Constraints plus goal maximization means policies have unintended consequences. The fact that there are unintended consequences does not just by itself mean all interventions are bad. Any policy that you can think of that libertarians would endorse, okay, some amount of national defense, say, is also going to have some unintended consequences. So the mere fact that you can't design a perfect policy doesn't mean you shouldn't have a policy. But it obviously raises that possibility. If the number of unintended consequences is large, uh, is, is, if there are many, if they're likely to be large, if the argument for the benefits of the policy are not so compelling, then it's clear that you're going to start to be very suspicious of all the kinds of interventions that modern economies have. Okay, so... Again, that's all positive economics for the moment. So what do we mean by normative economics? Normative economics is some analysis that tries to draw a conclusion about what policy should do. At one level, it's still sort of technical. You could write down some mathematical equation formula that says, this is what the policy should be for government. I'll talk about specifics in a second. And then you could use standard math economics tools to figure out what are the best policy given that stated goal for what the government is supposed to be accomplishing by its policies. Okay? So that's straightforward. But of course, we know that different normative analyses come to radically different conclusions about a huge range of issues. Okay? Different normative views persist, you know, are clearly widespread in the population. Now, that might be just because there are differences over science. You could certainly have two different economists looking at the same question, the same data, the same models, but both agreeing that, look, there's a lot of uncertainty over this particular analysis because we don't know various things. We don't have good experiments. We don't have good data. So maybe they would disagree just because of scientific disagreement. That's certainly a piece of why economists and everybody else disagree. I don't think that is a matter of practice. It's the main piece. I think the huge piece, why people come to different normative conclusions, is they disagree fundamentally, they think they do, over what values policies can seek to achieve. One way of thinking about that is lots of people think we should be trying to increase the size of the economic pie with efficient policies. Others are much more concerned with the division of that pie, how we divide it up okay, for any given size. Okay? So positive economics, in the way I'm describing it, is an input to the normative economics. It helps us know what will be the effects of policy A versus policy B. And the plea, the argument is, we have to think hard about all the unintended consequences of the policies, okay, not just the desire or the stated goals of those policies. But the positive economics by itself is not going to be decisive because it will depend which set of, of effects of policy A versus B you like will depend on what values you bring 
to the discussion. Okay, so what are possible objectives for policy? I'm going to focus on three. Obviously, you could think of others, or you could think of some weighted average of some of these, but I think these three capture sort of the crucial things that need to be discussed. One is policy should protect individual rights or respect individual rights. You could describe that as maximizing liberty defined in a particular way. Okay? Uh, so I, that should be familiar to everybody. You could think that policies should try to maximize consumption per capita. I say consumption per capita rather than income per capita because you actually care how much you consume, not exactly how much you, you, you earn. Um, some of what you earn has to go for investment and so on and so forth. So society might just want the biggest pie. So think about that as efficiency or maximizing the size of the economic pie. Third, you might think that it should be at least a goal, if not the goal, of policy to, just, to achieve a fair or just distribution of income with fair or just described in some way. I'm going to summarize that by calling it equity, although we'll have to talk about exactly what is the relationship between a particular distribution uh, and equity and what we mean by fairness or justice in a second. Okay, so the next thing to say, which at some level might be disappointing to libertarians, is economics doesn't dictate that any one of those is the right or wrong value system. Okay? There's nothing in economics that says it is better that you are right or wrong, you are more on solid foundations or anything like that. There's any theorem that tells us that any one of these goals is the right goal and the others are the wrong goal. That's just not what in economics. Um, it's also true that the different values, whether you're trying to maximize the size of the pie or trying to redistribute the pie in particular ways, could have radically different implications for what you think are the best policies. Okay? So if you think that consumers should be able to do what they want and they always know what's in their best interest, then one cost of drug prohibition is that it reduces okay, drug use. If you think that people are systematically making mistakes and government should be paternalistic and prevent people from doing things that are allegedly bad for them, then you think the increase in drug use that might occur under legalization is a negative okay, of legalization. So clearly, values can have okay, strong implications for what you think the best policies are. Okay? So you might now say, putting those two things together, if economics doesn't tell us what the right value system is and if different value systems are going to have radically different implications for policy, Maybe economics actually isn't useful at all because it provides some input about the effects of policy A versus policy B, but it doesn't really get us anywhere in choosing policy A versus policy B because that was just going to come down to different people have different values. Okay. But I'm going to argue that that's not the case, that the previous slide, economics doesn't really give us anything useful for choosing policies is wrong for the following reasons, which I will we'll do in much more this afternoon. I want to argue that positive economics, in fact, provides strong, okay, not necessarily 100% decisive, but very strong support for libertarian policy views across the board, social, foreign, economic, so on. I'm going to argue even more strong, that conclusion is basically independent, letter missing there, but you can guess it, um, is mainly independent of which of the value systems I had in the previous slide is the quote unquote right value system. Now that's a really strong statement. I want to try to argue that whether you're concerned about equity or efficiency, you should be a libertarian. Whether you're concerned about liberty or equity, you should be a libertarian. I won't have to convince very many people that whether you care about efficiency or liberty, you should be a libertarian. Those two sets of objectives cl clearly tend to lead in the same place. But I want to argue that if we think about equity correctly, okay, 
almost everybody is, should be convincible that they should actually be endorsing libertarian policies, okay, not the big government policies that we currently have. Okay, so just to sum it up for today, outline what's coming next. Uh, positive economics is a modeling tool. It does not by itself determine the best policies. We have to have a value system. I want to argue that it contributes to policy, any analysis, by helping understand the impacts of policies, by helping us figure out all the unintended consequences, what the true costs and benefits are of those interventions. But even more importantly, for this afternoon, I argue that positive economics supports libertarian policies for any reasonable, I can't say for any, but for any reasonable view on what the appropriate values should be for government policy. Okay, so I'm done. For now, we have about 15 minutes for questions. I'm told that you are supposed to come up to one of these two mics if you'd like to ask a question. Um, and uh, I will take people in order. Thank you. Libertarians are not that shy. Come on. <laughs> Is there a social economic model available today? Is there a social economic? I'm not sure what you mean by a social economic well, model. Well, it's a positive model. A it, model of what? Society. Well, there are many, many, many models. Where are they? Sorry? Where are they? Because if you go out to the internet, you sure can't find them. If you go to economics books, you can find them. Well. <laughs> I mean, you may not like those models, but there are models. <laughs> So I guess I'm still not quite grasping where you want to go with the question. Well, the question is, I, the analysis that we're conducting it at the moment says that there's a need for a social economic model to define what's going on here in the U.S., a positive or normalized model. So we've been trying to find an example of that. I don't think I have a good answer for you. I guess I would agree with you that it's very could be very useful to understand why it is that where the U.S. is moving in a bigger government direction overall, right, right. why Europe is still in a big government sort of direction. We got some big changes in the small government direction with the breakup of the Soviet Union and its liberalizations in China, but those are somewhat ephemeral and certainly a long, long, long way from what we would call small government. So understanding why, despite the fact that we're all correct, that small government is much better, we're surrounded by big government. That's a right. huge challenge but I don't have an answer to that. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Yes. Yes, thank you. Um, so I'm trying to boil it down to uh, what in this, this presentation, which was really interesting, that would make anyone, regardless of your value system, come to a libertarian-ish conclusion. Well, you were trying to get me to give away the afternoon's punchline, but in a nutshell, <laughs> that yeah, if you define equity... I'm not going to give it away. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I'm not going to answer that yet. Yeah. But if, if I just make an attempt kind of to, to okay. boil it down as I understood it, so that uh, the conclusion would be you should have fewer laws, but you should, you should make a greater effort evaluating each legislative proposal. And that would kind of be a libertarianish conclusion in the sense that don't legislate too much and uh, you know, really think. Uh, before you legislate? So that's not my punchline, but, ah, but okay. that's a good point. I certainly agree that we all would agree that there should be many, many fewer laws. Um, 
in some cases, I guess, we do need more analysis of particular programs, policies, laws we have. In some cases, I think it's well beyond obvious that they're doing much more harm than good. But that's not quite what I'm going to, that's not what I'm going to argue. Okay, so my, my real question is, um, uh, the Leffer curve, uh -huh. is there any consensus among economists at which tax rates um, the um, revenue starts falling? I wouldn't say there's a consensus. There certainly are estimates. There's certainly some evidence. Um, alas, I don't think we can claim that 50% is, is you get to the peak by 50%, but certainly much above that. There's lots of examples where revenue has started to decline as the tax rate has gone up above the 50% point. So that's, that's just sort of a rough average of the evidence that's out there. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned that uh, you cannot do economic experiments. Uh-huh. I think there are gigantic experiments. Okay, so East I'm going to talk about that this afternoon. East and you, West Germany and North and South Korea. Oh, okay. So you're thinking of... Okay, let me, let, me, let me address that. So first, what I said was a little bit too strong because there's a part of economics that does a ton of experiments. I don't quite like thinking of them as real experiments for the following reason. What those are is taking a bunch of college kids, putting them in a computer lab, and having them play these very stylized artificial games against each other, and seeing whether the outcomes, the way that they play those games, <coughs> is consistent with the predictions of a particular economic model. And the answer is not necessarily. So here's an example called the ultimatum game. Okay? So the experimenter, some neutral third party, comes to two of us. We're playing the game against each other. And he says, Jeff, you are supposed to offer, I can't see your name. So Adrian. Adrian. Some fraction of a dollar, which the experimenter is going to supply. He said, if you offer him whatever, 20 cents, get to keep 80 cents, and he accepts, then he gets the 20 cents and you get the 80 cents. If he rejects your offer, you both get nothing. Okay, so what should I offer you? simplest economic model you can write down says I should offer you a penny. Because if I offer you a penny, you will say to yourself, one penny is more than zero pennies, so I'll accept the offer. I'll walk away with the maximum share that I can get. Okay? That's not what happens in these experiments. People typically offer to let the other person keep 20, 30, 40 cents out of the dollar, sometimes you know, 50% of the dollar. Usually when they make a significant offer to the other player, it gets accepted, but sometimes it gets rejected even, though, even when it's 50-50. So that, you know, is, it's, it's not consistent. With, so there's tons of experiments like that, but they're not really experiments. It's not, it's an artificial situation. We don't know whether it tells us the way people behave out there in the world, because in the world there are different stakes, there are different habits, there's different institutions, there's all these other things that shape how people behave. So those kinds of experiments are there, but I'm going to talk about those a little bit more later. The quasi-experiments you're talking about, we got to see what happened when East Germany went from being communist to capitalist, or at least in the direction of capitalism. Yes, that's exactly what economists tend to use okay, to the best we can. The problem is that in many instances, there are many confounding factors. So having a clean natural experiment is rare, but we do the best we can. Yes, okay. Except that. Hi, my name is Mike. I'm a medical student from Canada. Uh, obviously, uh, obviously, over the last 70 years or so, there's economics has undergone a vast math, mathematization, I would call it. Uh, I just wonder if you could offer your uh, thoughts on the good and bad of that. So, for example, like, you know, obviously micro foundations and macro models. So the famous economist said, Simon Kuznets said that um, 
having mathematics had introduced into economics rigor, but also mortis. <laughs> and I think that's still a fair statement. Okay? There's clearly value in being clear and in being precise. So people know what exactly you've said and haven't said and what your assumptions are. Having to write down a specific economic model forces you to state your assumptions clearly. It also makes it hard for you to incorporate in your analysis a lot of fairly subtle things, intangible things, unmeasurable things. Okay? It tends to make you want to worry about a static model, a one-time model, because dynamic models are just harder to solve. So it is a straitjacket as much as it is sometimes, even though it's clearly a help to a large degree. So I don't think it's like any tool. Tools can be misused. If you try to saw a board with a hammer, you get a bad result. If you try to hammer a nail with a hammer, you get a pretty good result. So I think it's just a question of the art of knowing how to use models in Thank math well. Yes. Hi. Uh, great presentation. I thought it was really clear. I'm a huge fan of your work on the drug industry. I'm Steve Mariotti. I'm glad to be here. I wanted to just get your take on what would be the Austrian uh, von Mises and Hayek and, and that tradition uh, view of, of positive economics. How do they, they have a different view of it, and I'm just curious as to how you would articulate it and what you think that issue is. I think the right way to think about it is that they, they were economists, standard economists. They employed positive economics to talk about all sorts of things. They also, of course, made many, many normative statements that a central bank was, was bad because it caused credit cycles, that all sorts of interventions were, were bad. All I would say is they were not being as explicit as they might have been about what the values were relative to which their policies were the right recommendations. Okay? So they were roughly thinking in terms of economic efficiency. That's the crucial thing that they thought was what policy should try to achieve. They were not putting a lot of weight on, they, they were not perceived as putting a lot of weight on equity or the distribution of income. Now, they might well argue what I'm going to argue, which is that if you think about equity the right way, you should still just focus on efficiency. But um, they were not just being as explicit as they could have been. Great. Thank you. Hi, I'm Scott Nilsson. I'm doing my master's in education at Fordham. And you mentioned that economists, basically all economists are against rent controls, but only some are against the minimum wage. Right. When, you know, if they took Economics 101, they should be against both. They not only have taken it, most of them teach it. And they, still, <laughs> they still don't so believe can, the conclusion. So how do you explain that discrepancy? I think a lot of economists have a concern about income distribution that gets in the way. That, I mean, they would just say they put more weight on the distributional implications. And so they tend to support redistributive taxation more than libertarians would. They tend to support policies like a minimum wage because they think it's good for the distribution of income. Now, I still am totally befuddled but wouldn't that be because the, the distributional or, uh, implications of a minimum wage are bizarre, right? Under the standard analysis, and you pose a minimum wage, you raise the wage a little bit for some people and you generate a zero wage for some other people. Why is that on net a good thing? It's just bizarre. Some of the people who get the higher wage under the minimum wage law might be the following. A company that says, OK, I have to hire somebody for $10 an hour instead of 8 For 10 I can hire someone who is sort of a smart teenager looking for a summer job. At 8 I was just hiring some semi-unemployable sort of male head of household. 
who was never going to acquire any skills, was never going to be very sharp, but he was sharp enough to like, you know, run the cash register. So you cause a substitution away from people who are head of households whose income may be crucial to their families to some yuppie teenager who, you know, happy to have a summer job but doesn't quote unquote need it in nearly the same sense. So that's also a bizarre way to change the distribution of income via policy. So I don't get it. I don't have a good explanation. Okay. I mean, I've asked friends and they say, well, we think it helps raise the wages of some people some of the time and it doesn't cause very many people to become unemployed. Well, that might be, depending on how much you raise it. It might only cause a little bit of unemployment. But I keep saying to them, look, if you think raising it from seven to eight is good, well, then why not from eight to nine? Why not to 900? Why don't we have a minimum wage for every job in the economy of $20 billion a year? I think the logic would be the same. We'd raise the wage for those people who were not let go, and they just, I don't think there's an answer out there. Yes? Uh, you spoke about limitations and consequences uh, as affecting policy, but for quite some time now, it seems that we've had a circumstance in which we are borrowing more and more money, uh, and the idea then would be, in terms of classical economics, I think, that we'd have a great deal of inflation, and uh, uh, the rates charged for money, the interest, would go up. Hasn't happened yet. Do you have an idea what's happening? So the question of why the U.S. has not seen its inflation rate go up or its interest rates it pays on its debts go up yet, that's a hard question. It's Paul Krugman is, in fact, correct. Okay? Even a clock that stops is right twice a day. Um, <laughs> I mean, Krugman is certainly... Well, it's a well-taken point to say people have been predicting that inflation was going to take off and interest rates are going to spike for four or five years now, and it hasn't happened, and it's a little bit puzzling. You would have think that if people are forward-looking and they realize there's this huge debt out there and it's going to have to be repaid and there's all this expenditure we're planning to pay for in the form of Medicare and Social Security and so on, why haven't markets already internalized that and driven up interest rates and inflation? I don't think there's a really good answer out there. Um, but I don't think it's right to jump to Krugman's conclusion that, therefore, we should just say, oh, happy days. Let's just keep on doing more of the same. And the reason is that lots and lots of economies have been in analogous positions. They have continued to borrow and print money. And almost all of them have gotten nailed at some point their interest rate spike and their inflation rate spike without any warning. If you look at the path of U.S. and Greece interest rates up until March of 2009, they look identical. And then, because there was a particular debt payment, repayment coming due for Greece, something about it spooked the markets, and then their interest rates went crazy and the economy got much, much worse. But there was no warning. There was nothing. I mean, hedge funds lost lots of money because they could not see it coming. So the Krugman view that says, well, it hasn't happened so far, therefore we know it's not going to happen, or therefore we could ignore it, seems completely inconsistent with the evidence from history. That's a little like a guy who jumps off an Empire State Building and says, oh, past 50 floors, so, good, so far so good. You know, <laughs> yeah, okay, fine, but you're probably going to be sorry someday. <laughs> Uh, thanks for talking. My name is Jim. I'm a law student in California, by the way, and I hope my question won't encroach on the afternoon's discussion. But do you think uh, libertarian p policies could assuage the concerns of someone whose values are not the main three you mentioned, but rather sustainability or more traditional environmental concerns? Well, sustainability is one of the all-time stupidest words okay, in the policy debate. Um, but if you could get them to think about the economics 
Yes. And there's some people, there, there are lots of environmentalists who genuinely care you know, about balancing costs and benefits from environmental policies, correctly interpreted as assigning property rights in a rational way. There's nothing inconsistent between good environmental policy and, and libertarianism. What is true is that some people have what are called lousy values. They are not really interested in promoting any reasonable interpretation of sustainability or equity or anything. They're interested in using the government to harm people they don't like. Okay, so some fraction, maybe a very small fraction of people who want higher fuel efficiency standards, okay, it's because they hate you know, people who live in fancy suburbs and drive SUVs. They're just jealous, they hate it, and they're pissed <laughs> off. And it's not any well-motivated, well-intentioned desire to redistribute income and helps people who are really unfortunate. Okay, you may or may not agree that whether government should do that, should help the very poor, but it's not necessarily an evil instinct to want to help the poor. Whereas a lot of these sustainability things or some aspects of redistribution, all sorts of other policies, are just because some people are not nice. They want to use the government to accomplish inappropriate, I mean, what most people would accept are inappropriate, you know, nasty objectives. Yeah. Oh, sorry. We'll be over. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Uh, the way you talk about economics, it's so completely tied up with incentives that it doesn't necessarily seem to have to be tied to money at all. I mean, you could have social incentives by, I mean, many of the laws you talked about are just social incentives. I, it's a two-part question, but they're really closely tied together. So, um, When you look at the situation right now, and in the afternoon you'll talk about how it's tending towards, or, or at least in theory it should get towards libertarianism, we're not in a libertarian government, right? And there are very few no. governments uh, <laughs> that are even heading that way. I was wondering if you could look at, uh, almost from an economic point of view, the incentives inherent in our system of government, um, and if that's something that economics does, that tends towards a bigger government as opposed to a libertarian one, if what you say in the afternoon is true, which I'll... We'll so let me just take that. I mean, obviously, many people would like to have more stuff, whatever you want to think about as the relevant stuff. And they have realized, you know, that they can sometimes use government to help them get more stuff, create barriers to entry in their particular industry, have subsidies for their industry, so on and so forth. Um, so they're, you know, responding to incentives. The incentive is to manipulate government. And I fear that we've really undergone a big shift, especially for businesses, where their incentive maybe 50 or 100 years ago was to be sort of consistently anti-regulation, okay, and because they saw that regulation would tend to raise costs and be bad for business, to where they realized they can't fight that anymore. That ship has sailed, and so the only thing that's responsible for them to do to their shareholders is use whatever government policies they can to manipulate policy toward their industry or their firm or whatever. So yeah, that's again incentives. I wish I had a better answer for how it is that we can get small government or how we can get small government when we have it to stay small. In 1790, we had small government. We had a constitution that most people in this room liked a lot. I think that if it had been applied in the way in which it was intended to be applied, we'd still have libertarian government. But obviously, there are incentives out there for people to want to get it interpreted differently, and they've succeeded. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I had a question uh, regarding uh, your, your comments regarding experimentation and the kind of new science of econometrics. And just, just curious... Um, if you have any insight as to what's being done in the study of econometrics to 
um, make sure that we're not coming up with the wrong conclusions. And as an example, you're probably probably familiar with the work of Stephen Landsberg, but he gives a, a good example in one of his books about if you wanted to minimize punting in a football game, you, you would hire an economist to go through all the data and they would discover that, oh, punting always happens on fourth down, so let's eliminate fourth downs, <laughs> right? So happens all the time in real life, right, and in the real world. So just wondering what, if you have any insight, what's being done to kind of prevent that from happening? I'll, I mean, I think that economists teaching people to think about incentives, to think about constraints, goes in that direction. It obviously hasn't you know, worked perfectly so far. But from a, with respect to econometrics, trying to teach students about correlation versus causality, it goes in that direction. But there's not, not everybody is ready to hear the message yet, I guess is the, the problem. So we have probably time for two more questions. So. Minutes. All right, well, we'll see. If we can go fast, maybe we can get them both in. Hi, I'm Deepak. I study MS Finance at UMass Boston. Uh, you have listed a number of examples how government policies uh, resulted in unintended consequences and that made matter worse. And above all, for example, India is the biggest example how the chaos and all the unemployment because of government uh, right. unintended consequences. Then how can government get away with it and not only get away, they get to blame other people for that and enjoy power forever. How do they get away with it? They have, they have the, the guns. They have the taxing power. They have all the weapons. They hold all the cards. Okay? People can push back in various ways. You can vote with your feet. If one state does something loony relative to another state, you can move countries. People do that. But people's options are limited, especially if they you know, haven't thought hard about that government is not necessarily their friend. So, thank you. It's quick. We have less than a minute. I'll keep it quick. Thank you, sir. With all this talk of incentives, I mean, the problem is clear. We have the wrong incentives in the wrong places. How do we shift those incentives most effectively to produce the society we want to have? <laughs> in, in 20 seconds. <laughs> Bring more of your friends to Cato U. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs>